Most people assumed that Fox would settle, that they wouldn't want these damaging emails and texts to come out in Discovery, and there's probably going to be a whole other wave. I'm actually now persuaded by the notion that Fox is willing to take this thing, maybe to trial. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, March 6th, which means it's Media Monday. Today, John Kelly and I discuss the defamation lawsuit against Fox News by Dominion Voting Systems and how badly the cable network misread the political currents of November 2020. And we talk about whether artificial intelligence is coming for our jobs as journalists, and maybe why we shouldn't be so scared of new technology. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Monday, everybody. If it's Monday, it's Media Monday, and I'm joined by my boss, my best friend in the whole world, John Kelly. Talking. John, we we got scolded by a, a devoted Puck fan and Powers That Be listener to not talk about sports so much uh, on the podcast oh like we did last time. We did a little bit of a too-long detour on Patrick Ewing and Georgetown, but we won't talk that much about sports, but no promises. Sports is media, after all. No promises. Yeah, this is it. We're, gonna, <laughs> we're getting hard feedback that this is not college sports Monday or, or, or Big East Monday. I do want your views maybe offline about this. This insane situation unfolding at the University of Alabama men's basketball team where, um, you know, it looks like the number three pick in the NBA draft next year was a witness to a tragic murder. And and there's all kinds of just utter confusion about what the university should do here. Does, you know, he has legal rights to play, yet he's attached to this scandal, even though it's indirect. And it's one of those Mm -hmm. things where, like, the legal conversation and the media conversation are so different. And there's also, I think, an an element of, of racism that is coursing through it. As well, but you know what though? That's not this show. That people don't want to care. They don't, they don't care what I think about this or what you think about this. Brandon Miller, star guard for Alabama. Yeah, I mean it's a, a culture story. It's a race story. It's a sports story. Mm-hmm. It's a media story. It's a crime story. Um, it's not just sports. Anyway, there's lots of sports stories that fly off into other regions of commentary. So we reserve the right to talk about things like that, but not today. John, I want to talk to you about this 1.6 billion dollar defamation lawsuit by Dominion Voting Systems against Fox News. And Eric Gardner has written about this and he's been on this podcast talking about it from a legal perspective. You know, Rupert Murdoch earlier this week, it was revealed in testimony that he wishes his Fox hosts hadn't gone so far down this road and they could have, you know, changed tax earlier. And he basically admitted they were lying. Mm -hmm. Eric's take on this whole thing is with the text messages from people like Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity basically showing that they thought Trump and his legal team were full of shit. They went along with the big lie anyway. Even so, it's like still a hard burden to prove because the lawsuit is about whether Fox specifically defamed Dominion voting lawsuits. And what this lawsuit is revealing is it's proving what we all knew, that all of the election hacking and all the lies were all bullshit. We're now finding that Fox News hosts and producers knew it was bullshit, went along with it anyway. But did they specifically defame Dominion voting systems? And so, you know, you're not... An attorney, obviously, but you, like Rupert Murdoch, are a media CEO. Uh, what, like, what do you think? Is Fox going to have to pay this out? I'm just, I'm, just, I mean, one thing Eric said too was like he's just surprised Fox hasn't settled at this point. Yeah, well, I think that most people assumed that Fox would settle, 
that they wouldn't want these damaging emails and texts to come out in discovery. And there's probably going to be a whole other wave, another pretrial inning in these court cases where, where counsel for each side, usually the, the defendant, tries to argue that certain things are inadmissible, which, of course, makes you know people's radar go up. That, oh, my God, you know what did they say there that they're trying to rule inadmissible? I'm actually now persuaded by the notion that Fox is willing to take this thing uh, another beat, maybe to trial, uh, but that, that they're willing to move forward here. And that at the very least, it's a level of gamesmanship. Got to give it to the Republicans. I feel like, you know, they're always willing to, to push it. I think of this was CNN or MSNBC. They would have settled years ago. Uh, 1.6 billion does seem high. It seems like there's been some aggressive sloppiness. Dylan and, and Eric published a, a crosstalk conversation on Friday that pointed out that this comment that Murdoch uh, was alleged to have said about how he saw neither blue nor red, but only green. Actually, it was sort of misattributed. That was um, at the prompting of the lawyers who put those words into his mouth, and then and he kind of consented. So there's mm-hmm. a level of aggression here. But where damage is done, and I think that there's there's absolutely, obviously, a case, of course, I'm not a lawyer here, and I don't know how you really assess that kind of damage. But someone made an interesting point to me the other day that... Just, just resonated with me, and I'm not trying to be contrarian here at all. Uh-huh. But when you think back to like the sort of wild days of you know 17 and 18, when the Mueller report was you know sort of this this largely at that point speculative document, and it's not hard to picture an anchor on MSNBC having on a slightly wingnutty person who was making claims about Trump that actually turned out to be totally not true, you know, um, and, and that's not the same as defaming a business here. And election denialism is obviously incorrect and, and terrible in many ways. But there was a there was a liberal flu that I think caught on in the public in 2017, 2018, uh, a sort of golden shower flu that um, that <laughs> the culture has has largely forgotten when assessing this Fox News case. And I'm not trying to make a contrarian point here. Uh, someone made it to me and I thought that is actually that is quite true. And, and, and maybe it speaks to your question about the fact that a one point six billion dollar damages reward uh, would seem high. Yeah, I mean, the MSNBC argument you just made is more or less kind of what Fox's attorneys are saying. And like, this is a quote that they said in one of their legal filings. Far from reporting the allegations as true, hosts inform their audiences at every turn that the allegations were just allegations that would need to be proven in court in short order if they were going to impact the outcome of the election. And to the extent some hosts commented on allegations, that commentary is independently protected opinion. Look, again... The law will decide <laughs> who wins that argument. But like on cable news specifically, like punditry, you know, you allege something or you report. They call it like the first draft of history. Like that's our excuse mm. <laughs> in, in journalism, you know, right. for a constantly shifting stories or stories that need to be updated later. It's clear that like Fox hosts were intentionally and maliciously going forward uh, with these quote unquote allegations. But yeah, I mean. Did someone pee on Donald Trump is a (laughs) sentence that was certainly uttered probably uh, rather on MSNBC or CNN or all over the Internet. The bar for defamation against a public figure is really high, as the Sarah Palin lawsuit against The New York Times showed. Yep. I'm happy to see these folks embarrassed because it's just so asinine and malicious. Like that just gives me some joy. Um, One thing I chuckle at is. There are these sort of like journalism pundit types on Twitter who are like, see, Fox is not a news organization. And like they're citing the text and evidence in there. It's like this. That feels like something that was kind of 
settled many years ago. Yeah, we knew that, buddy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> like they are a right leaning uh, information network. Sometimes they do news, a lot of commentary, but like, yeah, I, I'm no, no one's comparing Fox to other like straight up news organizations anymore. Totally. Two observations quickly come to mind. And you're right. It's actually a kind of right wing crisis acting, you know, uh, on on some level. But one is that actually, I think if you'd gone back into the Wayback Machine of, I guess, 2016, when the Roger Ailes horrific tragedy was was taking place, that seemed like a total tornado that was going to tear Fox News apart. Turns out it wasn't. What he did was disgusting. He was defenestrated. He ended up dying not long after. And Fox News survived it. Is Dominion survivable? Yes, I think so too. But what's so interesting when you actually dig into the the comments, the emails, and the text threads, which I agree with you, are not surprising at all. You know, I sort of always mm-hmm. assumed that uh, at the end of the day, Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram were, were sort of you know people who were persona. But we often talk on this show and a puck about how endangered businesses like CNN and MSNBC are, well, so is Fox News, you know, and even though it makes billions in revenue and like more than a billion and a half, I think, in profit, at least, of course, according to the last numbers I've seen, mm-hmm. so much of the fear and panic of the executives comes through in these notes about Newsmax, and we've talked about that a bit with Dylan. The thing that actually seems interesting to me is, as I read through some of the document dump, this is a very Peter Hamby point. They're afraid of the wrong thing. Like there is a large and balkanized, but probably one day unifiable right wing MAGA adjacent sort of fear stoking millennial, you know, set of uh-huh. media companies. It's, it's the Ben Shapiro Daily Wire. Betsy mm-hmm. DeVos's family just invested in Glenn Beck's company, which, according to my back of the envelope calculations, you know, is making hundreds of millions of dollars a year in revenue with uh, much uh, less significant CapEx costs. It's happening out there. And by the way, a lot of the lies and the bullshit that these organizations are floating are even more terrifying in in many ways. And so I I actually read all this and and sort of endured the media storm thinking Fox News is generationally endangered and probably uh, afraid of the wrong competitors. I am so glad you said that. That was going to be my sort of final note on this. Like looking through those text messages, like the stuff from the deposition, Fox was, and all these hosts and producers and maybe Rupert were worried about eyeballs going to OANN and Newsmax. And Mm -hmm. that's just like such a panicked overreaction to a very specific moment. And I was having the same reaction to like tweets like that election week also in 2020 where reputable, you know, strategists and pundit types on Twitter and everywhere were like, well, even if Trump lost, the nomination's his in four years. That might be true. But it might not. And like political journalists and people in the media are like so addicted to the present and like whatever's happening in the moment. They often lack long term perspective. They can't see around the bend or be open to the possibility that things may change. And so, yeah, I don't think Fox was ever going to like lose enough viewers to One America or Newsmax. Like there was a, a fever going on in the Republican Party. That fever is still around. Yep. You know, it manifested in its worst case on January 6th. And the fever might die down a little bit. But like the 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 notion that so many Trump fans were so rabid that they would totally cut off Fox News, which is just everywhere, like compared to those other networks. It's just kind of like a silly fear. And yeah, I mean, like Tina wrote about like the Daily Wire's scale and like there's just so many new kinds of conservative media out there geared toward people under 40 specifically um dan bongino's podcast Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh the daily wire 
it just there's just so many, so many, so many examples of right leaning content all over the internet that will eventually sort of rival Fox and for attention, eyeballs, et cetera, et cetera. That might take a long time, but like looking over across the way at like Newsmax and being like, they're the rival, like is a little bit of misdirection. And like, I thought that was kind of silly. John, when we come back, I want to ask you about some concerns out there that artificial intelligence might ruin journalism um, and what its role is uh, in the news media moving forward. Welcome back to the powers that be, everyone. I was talking to Baratunde the other day, John, about artificial intelligence. We've had a few of these conversations. You were, I loved about... that. You made my day with that. Um, I spit coffee out of my mouth. <laughs> the Obama AI voice, yeah. yeah. That is pretty crazy. <laughs> I mean, I've been spraying those around to friends, like funny Obama and Biden impersonations. Um, something jumped out at me the other day, though. Uh, CNN had a piece. Uh, basically, they're citing a memo that the CEO of Axel Springer, Matthias Doppner, wrote and sent to a bunch of his newsrooms and companies. Axel Springer owns Insider, Politico, Build. Basically, he said, artificial intelligence has the potential to make independent journalism better than it ever was, or simply replace it. And he also said, in short, the creation of exclusive and attractive content remains irreplaceable, and it's going to be even more critical to success for publishers. Only those who create the best original content will survive. Now, that is a timeless admonition in the world of media yes, and the world of content. I've seen some tweets and some sky is falling commentary from, you know, journalists saying like AI is going to ruin journalism. There are certain things that AI can do. Like I'm okay with. Sometimes I'll look for like a stock price, for example. And I think it's like market watch or something. Like we'll just be like, this stock was up today. And like they, you know, mm -hmm. outperform the market on a strong trading day. And it's like a three or four sentence, like bot write up of just a very dry set of facts. And that kind of makes sense to me. Like you don't need a human being with like salary and benefits to write something like that. The stuff that um, Matthias was saying in, in that memo was right. Like the, the kind of dry fact-based, like searching for who won this game. Like there's, there's lots of like little sports blurb write-ups now that are generated by bots. That seems okay so far to me. It's the, the stuff that, that AI can't do is like investigative reporting, analysis, original reporting, um, sort of like on the ground, like human touch and, and insight, like, you know, having a reporter, you know, in Ukraine, for example. What do you think, like, are, is AI going to like come for all of our jobs or are these fears sort of overblown? You know, I think AI it has been coming for all of our jobs for a long time, you know, in, in a lot of ways. I think about, not saying anything revelatory here, but when you think about the sort of like prosaic parts of life over the course of our lifetimes as 40-ish ex-lennials or whatever we are, when your mom took you to the grocery store as a kid, there was a, a cashier and, and a person doing the bagging and then... You know, 10 or 15 uh -huh. years later, a check yourself out cart that replaced a couple of the aisles. And then 10 years later, there was just Instacart and Amazon and like, boom, you know, mm -hmm. and, and there's just massive displacement. What does that look like in, in text-based journalism? It means, first of all, that a lot of the garbage that was never necessary or ever wanted, the sort of, you know, the, the Huffington Post hate crimes that we talked about in the last episode, um, it will no longer be produced by underpaid 22-year-olds, but by a bot. And that's fine. 
a human being should not have to write what time is the Super Bowl on this year. I think it's fine if a, a chat GBT does that. I think that the point that Mateus is trying to make was that the internet has made clear that only the companies that do good stuff win. There are going to be a lot of companies that don't do good stuff. In fact, the BuzzFeed stock price bounced for once when, when the CEO, Jonah Peretti, said that they were going to replace a lot of their lower-rung labor one day with ChatGPT, or they expected to, mm-hmm. because a lot of it could be you know kind of algorithmically and, and AI-composed, um, and the market agreed with him. So, you know, I think we definitely, like, just broadly in media, we are countenancing a world where there is the really good stuff that you pay for, and mm-hmm. there is everything else, which is free, and huge ad systems will run through the free stuff. Ad stuff has a lower margin usually, uh, especially when you're talking at huge, huge scale. So the more that companies can pull down costs, the, the higher the margin, the, the better for everyone. So I wasn't surprised by any of this, and I think that anyone who's who's terrified that AI is coming for their job is, was already very vulnerable and... You know, it, it is the writer's instinct to see themselves, you know, as a victim of, of many circumstances. And I think that when you fathom all the consequences of um, AI in the world, there are many professions that are much, much more vulnerable than than media makers. Journalists, at least in my experience, having lived through, quote unquote, so many technological disruptions in my career. So, like, when I started working at CNN in 2005... The iPhone didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Twitter rolled out 2006, maybe. YouTube was barely alive. All these social media platforms, etc. Digital video wasn't what it was. And like journalists have this way of reacting to change, technological change in particular, with fear. And they mm-hmm. think that it's going to ruin everything. And there are bad outcomes to technological disruption and new platforms on the scene. But... You can also harness some of the opportunities, and 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 I just think that ah, this is hard to say, but like I just don't think journalists always need to be on their back heel when there's like a new technology that comes around, and be like oh my god, it's going to ruin everything. Like I'm not a huge Twitter yeah. fan, but like you could see what its value was and, and how it was grabbing people. And I remember in like 2006, going up to a senior producer on the Situation Room where I worked at the time. And I was working on a segment about how the internet was changing politics. To CNN's great credit, like they did this segment mm-hmm. called The Situation Online in 2005, 2006, where they talked about, you know, how different elements of news were intersecting with, with the digital world. That was cool. I was on CNN television. I was a producer on that segment. I pitched the senior producer on a segment about Twitter and how politicians were using Twitter to in very basic ways. Like I'm going to Iowa, you know, like in a very primitive manner that we used Twitter back then. And this producer looked up at me and goes, never say the word Twitter around me ever again. (laughs) And I was like, huh, okay. And that like really stuck with me for a long time. Like they're just the total lack of imagination, the total reluctance to embrace like new trends and interesting technologies coming along. Um, Like I'm still grappling with how AI is going to change our world, but I think you kind of nailed it. It puts more of a premium on journalists who can really add essential insight and reporting. I was thinking about this too. Friend of the show, Jonathan Martin, one of my good friends, mm-hmm. wrote a preview piece in Politico about the Chicago mayor's race the other day. And there's not a lot of reporters who can go to Chicago, get interviews with all the relevant candidates, talk to like all the like important strategists, do the man on the street voter thing. But you also have like enough of a sense of history to put it in perspective. And you have enough like regional knowledge 
to drop like sentences and like regional slights into your article. Like this is a sentence that he wrote. This is an actual sentence that only J Mark could write. Fearful that Lightfoot would lose to him in a runoff, she initially targeted Chewy Garcia, accusing him of negotiating a political peace with now indicted former State House Speaker Mike Madigan. The sort of bargain that's about as appealing to Chicago liberals as living in Joliet. <laughs> like it's such like a very specific like J Mart political line that an AI bot like literally. Yeah, like three three reporters could make that reference and get away with it. Yeah. Uh, and an AI bot just could never. So, yeah, I mean, I think it puts more of a premium on journalists to deliver the goods. And I yeah. think that's, that part of it's okay. We chose capitalism. And uh, for better or worse, we have to live with its discontents. Journalism is a traditionally risk-averse industry for every reason that you would expect. Making a small mistake can really set a career back in, in profound ways. When you see small technological innovations or big ones like ChatGPT and all these other you know AI bots, I just hope that this industry or this part of media quickly identifies ways to utilize them rather than ways to roll their eyes and pretend that they don't exist. Because I can tell you, hmm. if you're having a, a similar conversation in any Fortune 500 company right now, they're trying to figure out how to use these new technologies to uh, expedite workflow, expedite product, and make as much money as possible. And I think that that's, uh, that is often the right attitude. All right, John. Thanks so much, man. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.